So we'd like to welcome you all to our Empowering Podcast and I'm delighted to introduce to you Dr. Rona O'Mahony. And Dr. Rona is the consultant physician and endocrinologist here in the National Maternity Hospital and she qualified in UCD. And we all know her very well because she was the first female master of the National Maternity Hospital from 2012 to 2018. And as well as being a mother uh, of four children and a lovely wife, she also, and a consultant, she also sits in the Trinity um, Business School Health Care Leadership Programme where she's developing it. She's on the board of Halo Care, which uh, looks at helping elderly people and getting facilities for them. That's so important uh, in the whole COVID thing. We'll talk about that later. Also on the board of St. Vincent's Healthcare Group and also on the Little Museum of Dublin board. And she works, as I said, in the National Maternity Hospital where they cater for uh, 10,000 women per year and deliver about 8,000 babies. So that's amazing, Rona, and and well done. How do you do it all? (laughs) Um, It's not that. I'm part of a whole range of teams. Um, And the most important team being my... A uh, beleaguered husband, Dara, who does most of the work on the domestic front, and then obviously within the National Maternity Hospital and all the other areas, it really is about um, being part of a team. So um, there is no such thing as doing it all. You just make the best contribution you can. Good girl. And Rona, how many times have people actually told you how good you are? Do, do you? Because females <laughs> don't get that too much. Men are always put up on pedestals. Uh, are women? Do you think? Um, that's such an interesting question. Um, I always think it's a very bad idea to mm. be up on a pedestal. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the first thing. And um, there's only one way. Yes, yes. <laughs> down. But it is nice to be appreciated. Of course, and mm. everybody. It's one of the most fundamental things mm. um, for all of us yes. in whatever sphere we are functioning in. Yeah, acknowledgement yeah. is one of the key things. Yes, and actually, yeah. and whatever about me being acknowledged personally, I think that for all of us, it's a really good idea to look around us in the workplace or at home yes. and to acknowledge the good things that are done by our colleagues and by our family members because it is the sort of thing that raises mm. your spirits and particularly when we're all exhausted and you're really tired and there hasn't been a great day. Yeah. If someone does say, you know something lovely um, so it's kind of note to self note to everyone when you can say the nice things say the good things and encourage people because actually sometimes the smallest sentences the smallest words have the biggest impact and mm. I remember my own mentors coming along during training and every now and then somebody would say well done you did a good job and your heart would just soar mm, and mm. that would give you that encouragement um, to keep going because it's in the tough times when those words can mean an awful lot absolutely and, and just because you're confident on the outside doesn't mean that you're always confident and you do need that mm-hmm. reinforcement everyone is human yeah. and everyone yeah. has a fragility and a vulnerability absolutely. and everybody also has all kinds of domains in mm. which they are living and so you come to work every day but and we see all our colleagues at work but we don't really know what's mm. going on in their lives and some people are experiencing awful times mm-hmm. very good very keep good the face on and, and keep going good. so i think a little bit of empathy sometimes and being aware Good girl. And I heard, I listened to your uh, wonderful podcast with Ivan Yates on News Talk. It was excellent. And I know all about the GA in your family. <laughs> but what was you the, what was it that drove you into medicine? Like why did, and why did you choose obstetrics in particular? Yeah, I, mean, I think I was always interested I- in medicine, you know, mm-hmm. just from an early age. There's no one really in my... I had a great uncle who was a surgeon in St. Vincent's Hospital and mm-hmm. there was Bob O'Connell and there was always great chat about him in the family. So he was quite a mystical figure. Um, but in general, I suppose, coming along at school, 
I wanted to do something that would make a good contribution. Mm. I wanted to do something that would fascinate me and something that would not involve maybe sitting, doing a routine job that would become repetitive mm -hmm. um, and something that would have a social element to it. Mm -hmm. And of course, all of those things exist in medicine. It's mm. endlessly fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, you learn so much about the physiology of your own body. Absolutely. You learn about, you know, when that goes wrong mm. and what happens, what is the effect of that. But ultimately, there is a sense of purpose in medicine. I mean, you do go to work every day and you hope mm -hmm. that you do a good job and that you make it. And difference. you're very rewarded when people do well and, and obviously delivering babies or little miracles is just Absolutely. wonderful, even um, though it's very. And equally in my area, fetal medicine, mm. very often it's the other side of the mm. coin. It's when things don't go well yes, that perhaps yes. it's most important mm. to be at your best mm -hmm. um, and to have that be empathetic yeah and have that compassion and to mm. realize that there are some times when you can't save the situation mm. um, I mean obviously we're learning and mm. always feel you can do better mm -hmm. but there are times when nature has one up on us mm. um, and Absolutely. we see great tragedy but they are the times it's really important mm. um, to really focus and do your very best totally um, and one thing I would love that listeners would, would do is realize as doctors we're doing our best we go into medicine to do our best but that we're not God mm. and sometimes I feel particularly in obstetrics when things go wrong mm. they lash out at the doctor mm. when it's not it's nature and mm. it's some, you know because as we all know when I was pregnant myself and you were pregnant and Rona and you know even being the professional that you're still worried all the time mm. and you were not happy till that baby is delivered mm. you know that's the, this, the, the joy of, of pregnancy and, and going through it you're, you're absolutely worried all the time but I would love that people would just step back and realise that doctors are doing their best and they've got to stop lashing out wouldn't you agree because I think we're going to stop a lot of good people going into medicine medicine and obstetrics in particular because of the litigation. I think litigation mm. is a real yeah. concern, Mary, I agree. Mm. And I think that Ireland, again, has a very high rate mm. um, yeah, of litigation. So yeah. And also the manner in which it's conducted sometimes yes. can be so adversarial. Mm. Yes. And the result is that we end up pitting patients against their doctors at the very time when that doctor-patient relationship mm. can be so important. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I just think... We're, we're, and we're keeping good people out as well, which I, I think is an awful shame. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we end up in long processes as well, which is awful for families. Mm. And I mean, mm. the classic example is cerebral palsy, which yes. is, of course, one of the most devastating yeah, consequences of mm. any mm. Um, any medical endeavour mm. um, or indeed physiological endeavour. And I think when we look at how we manage at the moment, I think there are a lot of changes and a lot of improvements that we could make. Mm -hmm. um, I think for families to have to go to the High Court to prove medical negligence um, is really They've challenging. Gone yeah. They've gone through enough. Absolutely. Um, I think that the whole question should be every baby, every time, that we are caring for every baby the best way we can and we mm. shouldn't be waiting for some families to get you know, mm. the kind of large payouts that are required to mm. care for children Absolutely. where other families are left. Um, trying to struggle mm. to make this happen. And I think as our understanding of the etiology of cerebral palsy advances, mm -hmm. you know, it really is rarely, I think, the dip in the Absolutely. CTG that caused this. But we are caught up with a very crude mm -hmm. monitoring mm. system within our labours is the best we have. Um, but I don't think by any means mm. um, that this is the full explanation. And yet too often in court, we are relying purely on looking at CTG Absolutely. reading as if this is the whole Absolutely. lock, stock and barrel. The, the truth is, 
our, our ways of monitoring babies, both in utero and mm-hmm. indeed during acute phases like labour, are actually quite limited. Totally, um, totally. And one of the things I think as well is that, uh, you know, as you said, we were talking earlier, that reproduction is the essence of humanity. Mm-hmm. Without reproduction, evolution isn't possible. This is so important. And yet uh, we are, you know, I often think of men were having babies, Rona. <laughs> the, you know, the, this, the funding would be so much better. But, you know, obstetricians, midwives, they work so hard. I know I have loads of them coming into me as patients. I work with them. And they're always saying to me how understaffed they are, mm. how sorry they are, you know, that, that when they see women trying to struggle to breastfeed and they just can't help them because they don't have the time. Mm. They're totally understaffed. And that's so wrong. And, and I do think that we need to look at that. And mm. it also comes into a point that, you know, if you're understaffed, you can't give the, the care that you really need, even though you're doing your 500 percent. Mm. I, I just think we need to look at that. I agree. And I think when we look at, you know, mm. women's health care in general, mm. um, we mm. look at a whole legacy in this country yeah. um, of negative elements, mm. you know, whether it be sort of the facilities, which yeah. nobody ever really bothered to look at very much. Yeah. You know, when I look at my own hospital mm. and I remember the first day as master walking around the hospital and just mm. looking at the facilities in the National Maternity Hospital, which Absolutely. is a tertiary referral hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, elements of them are just not acceptable. Mm. Um, mm pretty much all of our infrastructure falls below current modern day standards and that really is not good enough. Not at all. Um, And that is something that needs obviously to be addressed and Mm. I'm passionately obviously an advocate of the move to St. Vincent's. But equally in terms of, you're absolutely right, in terms of the funding Mm. of women's health care, in terms of the staffing, you know, for many years Mm. this was an area of medicine that had been hugely neglected and hugely misunderstood. We tend to regard women's health care as some kind of silo Mm. Um, that's really not that important Mm. and that is purely just about periods and babies and we sort Mm. of don't really want to know about that. It is fundamental to just society how we care for this generation, the next generation. It's fundamental to a healthy intergenerational. Totally. But I do think, Rona, it's because of the way we treated women and how women were treated in society. I really think that we need to up our game and I think that, you know, we'll talk about menopause later, but I think that if women voice relies their their self-worth, relies their power, realize their contribution to society they wouldn't be putting up with what they're putting up with because mm. as I you said the standards of even the accommodation are appalling mm. they I, really I, are I think there's two big elements mm. I, I think if we look back over the last hundred years and mm. we're about to come mm. up to a hundred years since mm-hmm. the free state was founded and yeah. almost from the outset of the foundation of the free state women were written out of public life yes, so we yeah. saw a lot of laws passed the employment bill the juries bill that really took mm. women out of central roles Absolutely. I mean we really you know six decades after the mm. first doll and um, it was not until then that we saw more than 10 women mm. kind of in Irish Parliament we've seen a dearth of women at Cabinet mm-hmm. making the big decisions and therefore I think we have had really not enough role in the yeah. policy. And it's still very difficult for them because the late doll sittings and so forth. Absolutely yeah. and it's mm. very anti mm. family life yes, completely. Exactly. But the other big issue and we're talking about a lot today earlier in the news is childcare mm. and the fact that in Ireland childcare is purchased privately, Absolutely. it's hugely expensive, it's also very patchy in terms of availability but mm. this is a huge issue because most women um, when they are having their babies it's also a time when their careers are developing mm. maximally so if they don't have the right support mm. in terms of childcare that can be a real barrier to women you know going through their career mm. developing at that pace mm. that often happens when we're in our 30s and early 40s Absolutely. and I think 
and all of those again reflect a common theme which is a lack of women's voice at the high big tables where the policy decisions are being made Absolutely. and so what we're looking at whether it be infrastructure whether it be lack of staffing or funding mm. lack of ability of women to work through their careers all of this has been an absence mm. of catering for women in every element of our society totally. in the workplace at home wherever totally and, totally and that's something we need to really address if we're going to really have mm. equality Absolutely. In, in our society and that's why we you heard today because we're hoping to educate all the women and then <laughs> get them to go on, on the airwaves and, and push and show us their voice. And going back just to the maternity, I just remember my own, recall my own case when I, my first pregnancy was twins and mm. I went into emergency labour, right? But before that, I was actually terrified of having them naturally because my friend had lost one of her twins mm. uh, the, six months previously. So here as a doctor, I'm a human person and I had the, had the, the chat with my, my uh, consultant obstetrician I said, look, I really want a section. Now, as it happened, I went into emergency labour, so I had to have an emergency yeah. section anyway. But I remember the nurses coming over apologising for afterwards because I had two little beautiful boys at either side stitched as you are with it with a section and I was struggling with pain to sit up and I was trying to feed them and the nurses were, were um, the midwives were you know apologizing saying Dr. Ryan we, we'd love to, to help you but we're just so and I could see they were totally understaffed and I just thought this isn't on you know mm. now that was 17 years ago and not much has changed Rona so we really have to sort of you know as you said we're doing our best to, to but we, we've a lot to do don't we it, you know it really we, and that's just one point another point is that you know I you and I both meet women who you know maybe wanted to have a section couldn't have because it was understaffing ha- had a really long labour and ended up having you know bladder problems and that they will carry these for the rest of their lives and that that's terrible for all those doctors who are caring for and the midwives as well and these are all things that with more staffing and more funding the, you know you need anesthetists to be able to do a section you need more more staff and more midwives and more don't you so I think that's something that has to be listened to. I mean it's a fascinating question there's no doubt mm. I think that we need more staffing and mm. we look and we do comparisons with mm. other OECD countries mm. and we see how understaffed we are so yeah. that is with that question mm. um, and we have seen improvements to be fair in the last few years I mean mm. I do think the HSE have tried and mm. we have seen birth rate plus we've tried to increase our No midwives. they're brilliant we're just asking them to go keep going. Yeah, yeah absolutely and you know they are trying to address mm. but of course recruitment and retention and I'm not going to mm. we're not going to spend too much time mm. on that here but recruitment and retention of obstetricians um, of any doctors in mm. Ireland is becoming increasingly Very. problematic for, for a variety of reasons mm. um, and also getting the right staff so we know mm. that theatre nurses, neonatal nurses mm. are particularly mm. in short supply because we're looking at very highly skilled people yeah. and we have a very small pool of those highly skilled people and we have an international environment that mm. was also has a dearth mm. of neonatal nurses, midwives, obstetricians anaesthetists so mm. if you like the whole of Western Europe and many areas mm. in the world are really looking um, for the staff so it is a global problem mm, and mm. we really need a collaborative approach, approach. but as you said it's, it's women need to be at the top table absolutely uh, emphasizing the need for it um, absolutely. because for too long it's been left as a sort of way down the, the, the list and Agreed. it's just not good enough and when we look at reasons why there's a lot of studies done in Ireland mm. Brian McCraw mm. um, looked this DCU you know had various studies done to see why things like job flexibility mm. and making life a little bit more family friends there's lots of things mm. that we can do and mm. um, it's not a hopeless question no but it it's is not a question that but needs it needs a huge funding and it does need the addressed. funding and it needs to be addressed yeah and then back to the physiology you know it is really tough mm. the physiology of 
pregnancy, mm. labour and delivery and particularly first babies in terms of mm. vaginal birth. We know Absolutely. those labours are longer. We know they're more likely to result in an instrumental delivery mm. or indeed um, in And we probably infection. need more education around that, we don't we, Rona? Because edu- I think a lot yeah. of women go in not knowing what they're to, to, to and going to happen. And then they're traumatised. We see that all the time. Yeah. They don't want to have a second because the first was so traumatic. Absolutely. Mm. And I mean, I think anyone who works in a maternity hospital will mm. say there is night and day, you mm. know, in terms of vagina delivery between a first vagina mm. delivery and a second vagina mm. delivery. And we sort of feel that if we can weather that first vagina delivery, then very often the other deliveries mm. will follow. Mm. They'd be a lot more straightforward and it's really worth mm. that effort for that first vagina birth. But there are times when that's just not a good idea. Mm-hmm. What is, of course, so fascinating is the rise in cesarean section rate. And this mm. is of huge concern, mm. rightly, mm. Um, again, across developing world as to why. Having that's said happening. that, I resent the too posh to push. I resent yeah, that as no, a woman. No. I, I just feel that no one wants it once surgery wants a section unless there's a reason mm-hmm. you know and, and we all we both know the reasons so I think there's sort of a, a sort of a putting down women by that too posh to push I, I resent it if, and, and as I said who wants surgery nobody does but there's a reason mm. that why someone would want it yeah, absolutely but I think the rising section rates are, are quite interesting to me mm. as, as to why and we don't have really good opinion pieces or papers yes. as to why the cesarean section rates going up but we know our population changing I and mean, mm. the demographic is so different yes even during my 25 years in obstetrics. Oh yeah, I mean they're um, all older they uh, and, and um, again I resent the Bridget Jones thing about the geriatric, geriatric mother, that's rubbish, that's rubbish because we all start, well yeah. I certainly started in my 30s but you know the, the um, I yeah. love that film. <laughs> <laughs> Except the geriatric baby thing, didn't yeah. like that star, geriatric mother <laughs> didn't like that at all, but go on and run yeah. Um Agree, I mean all these pejorative terms Yes, I mean, they need to go, we um, need to, as women say we're just not allowing that term no, but, but there are issues that arise though with um, older mm. when we're older having our babies um, and also with our um, BMI mm-hmm. um, with our activity right you know and with other intercurrent diseases you know mm. and now we're seeing women getting pregnant brilliantly who Absolutely. might never have gotten pregnant before we have more assisted reproduction but this is changing Absolutely and as you said Rona the governments need to realise that if they want women to be participating in their workforce which is happening participating at the top table which is happening then women are going to be having their babies later mm. and therefore they've got to they may need more help and, and but you have to give it because it's all participating to a great economy isn't it and a great it's about inclusiveness absolutely and it is about supporting because again Mm. like a woman having a baby this is not an isolated event this Mm. is our next generation this is Ireland absolutely this is the next generation of our country these are going to be the people who are going to run our country who are going to look after us Um, and so there it's really important that Mm. we see birth in a much wider dimension than purely what happens on the the labour ward Mm. Um, obviously Mm. there's that individual story that's Mm. so important Mm -hmm. but there's also the societal element Mm -hmm. to birth and how fundamental, absolutely mm. fundamental it is in terms of our society. Mm. And Rona, on call, I just want people to know mm. how hard you work because I think this is important. I don't think people realise, I think as doctors, we don't communicate enough with the public in terms mm. of seeing the real human being. Uh, how, how often do you do call? You do call an awful lot, don't you? Um, we're actually not too bad in hospitals in our rota, but when mm. you do call, mm. it is, yeah, it's tough. I mean, I go up, sure, like mm. as a young doctor, would have gone up yeah, times like in myself. one and three yeah. call, yes, one and yeah. four. I mean, you're always yeah. on call and then even as a registrar. But that's fine in your 20s, but going into your 30s and 40s, Absolutely. you know, that's um, tough. And then you find, in, obstetrics is quite interesting because you find mm. when you get to be on call, you're just as busy. It's mm. not that you're kind of issuing edicts and mm. not getting involved. I mean, we are very involved on call. And mm. it can be really busy and it's very mm. unpredictable. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it, you know, you may have one very ill patient, but the rest of the labour ward will keep running as usual. Mm. So mm. you're all the time balancing. Mm. It's all and about your four children at home as well. <laughs> yeah, so it's all that. Um, they 
just go like, who's mom? Um, who is she? <laughs> no, no, mom gives um, high quality. I know she does, even though it's 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 quality time, not quantity, isn't that it, Rona? I hope Rona, so. <laughs> we both worked really hard in in trying to educate about menopause and bring more awareness of menopause, perimenopause, and it's wonderful news this week that the government have finally mm. listened. And can I ask your views on that? And and can you tell me more? I, I think, think it is. I agree yeah. with you. I think it's very interesting when I came into medicine first we had a lot of focus on menopause there were dedicated menopause clinics mm. in most of the hospitals I worked in and mm. then um, and during the 90s we had a lot of focus on the research mm. um, surrounding HRT mm. surrounding menopause and then something happened <laughs> during mm. the 2000s mm. menopause kind of seemed to disappear a little bit well there was that scare wasn't there Rona with, with the, the you know the query risk of breast cancer and then mm. that was sort of wiped out and said mm. well it's, it's there but it's much reduced to compare but it did scare people there have been yeah mm. lots of conflicting yes, evidence yes. of yeah. course there has mm. um but but our focus mm. left and, and right, we saw this yeah. in the UK as well mm. you know I remember talking at one of the meetings I was over in England one stage and we were just kind of musing mm. on what happened to menopause you know yes, what I mean so it's yeah. like putting the menopause back into yeah. our lexicon again yeah. um, and I have a vested interest now as I get a bit older yeah. I am now most interested in all men's of all elements of um, menopause but it is a very important area because first of all women um, there's a big morbidity and suffering mm. during menopause and you know it can be a very time of huge symptom um, and huge challenge mm. for women trying to get up every day so I think we're all familiar with a lot of the symptoms but just being exhausted and um, the hot flushes and not being able to sleep the brain fog the vagina dryness the fog absolutely yeah. and the exhaustion um, the exhaustion I yeah. mean just that profound fatigue mm. wondering if there's something else terribly mm. wrong or mm. is this physiological mm. but also that very cruel kind of change mm. as if nature is saying to you right well that's it yes, you're no exactly. longer now that dynamic reproductive human being you're yeah. now a little bit over exactly. this and there's this very clear physiological um, demarcation I remember years ago listening to now McCafferty mm. talking, talking about her own menopause oh she was brilliant obviously yes. with humor and rawness but yes. it was one of the most arresting talks I've ever been to because Amazing. she was just so honest yeah very much and so, so human and I remember good. it just had a big impact on me mm. in terms of um confidence totally um, in relationships confidence in who we are as people and lots of other things are changing for us too children mm. are growing up maybe they're leaving mm. things are happening at work we're no longer climbing mm. a ladder we're kind of mm. getting there and going mm. is this it so Absolutely. there are so many issues around it and trying to navigate that yeah. can be really challenging yeah. but what's terrible Rona I suppose and, and until this year really because we both have been uh, trying to educate about it is that you know women for years didn't know the symptoms of menopause mm. their partners didn't know them as symptoms and they were suffering I mm. mean you know we've both come across women who went into early menopause um, late menopause yeah. but they, they you know five years later we got them but they, they didn't and if they did go they, sometimes they weren't listened to now sometimes they were but sometimes yeah. they weren't listened to so I suppose that, that's something we're, we're trying to change No definitely mm. and, and, and for sure it can be a very emotional time mm. and people can be confused by those emotions sometimes just feeling irrationally mm. angry mm. feeling very low in mm. mood and it is mm. there is an adjustment Very much um, so. and there is as we know A second spring absolutely. which is another 50 years yeah, after the menopause kind of mood disorder and, yeah. and again a big identity shift mm. which we see in birth as well actually totally. and then we see 
us grappling to kind of adjust to that identity shift. But here we are again yeah. with another identity shift that is perhaps a bit less positive. So yeah. and all the things that are going on surrounding that and it can have a real impact absolutely on relationships mm. and personal relationships with husbands, children. Terrible because the libido goes down, the vaginal dryness is a big absolutely. problem with, in, with intimacy and so absolutely. forth. Absolutely. Yes. And, and yeah. trying to weather that, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not tonight, you know what I exactly. mean? And the impact that has for our partners and mm. the real importance of being able to discuss that and explain mm. why libido is gone or yeah. why one doesn't want to have sex anymore. And it's not a withdrawal of affection mm. or love, exactly. but that it is really a physiological phenomenon mm. and trying to help those around mm. understand and give the right support mm. because I think sometimes women just feel a bit lost Absolutely. and trying to cope with all this. Absolutely. And I'm always forever saying to women to listen to their bodies at this time because the putrid land, you know, can mm. recharge and do a lot to help itself mm. by just, you know, taking the time to rest, which is, of course, what women don't do. They keep going, as we both know, Rona. But we're trying to empower them to have more self-worth and to listen to their bodies and mm. pull back and rest. But wow, uh, HRT yeah. has been a huge help. Yeah. But what I'm concerned about is there's some mixed messaging going on. And that's one of the things I want you to talk about because mm-hmm. you, I think it's important that people are given the right information yeah. about HRT. So can you... Yeah, I know lots of studies and for many years we have grappled with mm. whether HRT is good or bad mm. and different. And we have got some big studies like the Million Women study, mm. um, Liberate. But I think one of the difficulties is, is that we can't do really randomised controlled trials mm. in a lot of contexts of HRT because mm. that would not be ethical. Mm. And then trying to get the numbers up. So mm. our research is largely observational. Mm. Um, but we need a long time for mm. that observation and we need lots of women mm. um, involved in any mm. of those studies. And that can be challenging in its own right. Mm. Um, the Million Women study probably is the closest study mm. to achieving the sort of power that we need mm. um, to make um, good judgments mm. in terms of the data that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And then we're looking at all kinds of different formulations of HRT. Absolutely. So, so again, it's a bit foggy okay. when we look at the evidence um, okay. for obvious reason. But we mm. do know that HRT is really effective in relieving the vasomotor symptoms. Mm. So that's the hot flushes, not being able to sleep. It sweating. can help with mood yeah. and the sweating. So we mm. know it's really effective in and, terms of... And how long would you, do you agree with it being people staying on HRT? Because this is the thing I'm seeing in social media where as doctors, we say a certain age and then people are saying, oh, you can stay in forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so vasomotor bone also, bone density, just mm, to say huge, yeah. we know it's really effective mm. in protecting bone density, although when we stop it, there is decline exactly mm. in, in that in um, that maintaining mm. that bone density. But so they're the two areas where we know HRT is really effective. Mm. What we worry about <clears throat> absolutely is the side effects. Mm. Um, and the big side effects, I suppose, that people worry about is does this increase my risk of breast cancer, stroke, mm. heart disease, mm-hmm. um, etc. So mm. um, in truth, we think that HRT is relatively safe for mm-hmm. most women who mm-hmm. are healthy. Um, certainly up to five years of treatment seems very reasonable and very safe. Mm-hmm. We feel there may be a slightly increased risk of breast cancer in women who take HRT, probably particularly the combined estrogen progesterone, mm-hmm. the risk being a little bit less with the estrogen only. Mm-hmm. But that risk is very small and it's set against a background risk that is really quite high. Mm. As we go beyond the five years into five, 10, 15 years, Mm. then those risks are probably rising a little bit again. So certainly that kind of window of five-year treatment. Mm. Um, and it's all balanced against... Absolutely, because we, we have some women, obviously, that you, when you take it off, they just can't function. So you have exactly. to leave it on. It's, it's a real balance. And, and you, you reduce their other risk factors like cholesterol, blood pressure and, and obesity That's and right. so forth. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we look at heart disease and mm. we feel that taking HRT probably does not increase, mm. um, you know, particularly the risk of 
heart disease. It's There's, actually protective for people, the first yeah, 20 years. Yeah, estrogen only yeah. people feel it's probably mm. a little bit protective. Mm. Um, some studies are conflicting, but mm. we feel certainly mm. it's not a bad thing. Um, and what do you say about the evidence um, of transdermal HRT? Same yeah, thing, you know, so they sort of wide a statement come out, oh, everyone can take transdermal HRT yeah. even if they have breast cancer. Um, They're the sort of things that I... Transdermal has some benefits mm. in that you're able, I suppose you're giving a lower dose directly mm. into circulation. Mm. And so we do feel there's probably a lower risk of stroke mm. um, and clotting yes, um, yes. that can be associated with transdermal mm. use. So that's or, you know, using mm. the gels, we're rubbing them into our skin mm. and we're not taking oral HRT. Mm. So there certainly has been a big move um, to using transdermal. And what, um, and, and what do you think about the, the you know, because the, the trial that said that it was safe um, is actually quite small, that it's safe in breast cancer. Again, mm. um, I think, you know, that's in conjunction with your mm. doctor. I mean, I think that it's not that we can say that women with either a family mm. history of breast cancer or indeed breast cancer, you can never take HRT. Mm. In fact, there's many studies that are reassuring mm. in terms provided of family not, history. Yeah, provided it's not estrogen positive, which we know that exactly. not all breast cancers are estrogen positive. Exactly, yeah. but depending on the type of cancer. cancer. So it is something... I think that has to be put across, though, because yeah. that, that, otherwise all women think, oh, well, you can take it regardless. Yeah. And of course, that's not true. Yeah, you I, know? I think that's yeah. a decision made yeah, you with have to. your team, Absolutely. with your doctor, so that you're looking at the whole picture. That's it. Um, that's it. And every woman, you know, there might be different decisions made mm. in individual cases because all of us have slightly different circumstances. Mm. Um, Absolutely. But certainly... Um, at the very least we need to have those discussions mm. and women need to be advised look these are the risks and I mean women ultimately might make decisions where they will be happy to take on a low risk mm. or mm. a certain risk and what do you think about this micronized progesterone that seems to be the, the <laughs> real thing now with the yeah. with the with the eastern patch that's right um, so we have obviously lots of ideas mm. I mean one of the oldest one was simply the marina coil mm. which would sit in the uterus and give a tiny bit of um, you know um, hormone and that would protect and, the endometrium for cancer and you can give your um, estrogen only patch yes. that's a pretty popular yes absolutely um, and they don't have to worry about getting pregnant which exactly. is a big thing yeah. and the coil sits there for five years oh. so it is pretty and also the effect on periods mm. um, so I have found that to be really effective mm. actually um, mm. as in fact <laughs> I have a coil in myself <laughs> <laughs> and I put on the odd patch when I can remember um, in the fog. But um, I think, you know, the marina coil doesn't work for everyone. Yes. But yes. in certain cases, we see it has a really great effect. Absolutely. Particularly for women who have very heavy periods and you're mm. trying to bridge because you know the mm. periods are going to go mm. um, in a couple of years, mm. likely, as we're getting to late 40s, early 50s. Mm. And so we don't really want to get into hysterectomy and mm. the big surgeries because mm. we might just get there. So yes, in those women, yeah. sometimes the coil can work mm. really well mm. and then you give your estrogen mm. um, transdermally and that can be very effective on a range of fronts. So and again, yes. it's all about the woman, the whole woman, yes. um, what her lifestyle is, what she needs um, and what other issues are yeah, pertaining. Yeah. Um, but I think in general, um, HRT has a good track Absolutely. record yeah. um, taken under supervision um, yeah. and certainly within those first five years we do have I think pretty good data emerging mm. now that is quite reassuring certainly mm. in that five year Absolutely um, and as you said we always promote healthy eating and not being obese because that does drive breast cancer not smoking Absolutely. and all, you know, all those other things that we can all control But I, I do think for women with intercurrent mm. um, medical issue it's really good to have a talk with your doctor just to oh, see yeah. 
yeah. um, yeah, kind of yeah. where it fits into mm. your whole strategy. Mm. Um, and obviously there are other treatments out there. Mm. Um, and St. John's Wort is the one that's always kind of mm. quoted, but we've got to be really careful. St. John's Wort can interfere um, with other medications mm. and their efficacy. Um, and then not all herbal medications are benign. Mm. Um, they have, you know, Absolutely. pharmacological ingredients in them, mm. which can impact another medication or other areas of our health. So Absolutely. we have to be a little bit careful. Absolutely. There are non-HRT like clonidine mm. um, tablets that can help us with the vasomotor mm. symptoms. Mm. Um, but sometimes they're just not quite as effective. Effective, yeah. Um, as, and then there are local vaginal treatments as well. Which are great. People. The pessaries are wonderful. Yeah, so yeah. people might want to avoid overall yeah. HRT, but exactly. may have a particular problem with vaginal dryness. So yeah, lots yeah. of options there. Mm. And, and that is, again, the thing that's probably held us back with our studies is there mm. are lots of options. So we're but as you said, you know, the, the majority of us would, would do it for five, maybe 10 years. Mm. But you, you then look at it, don't you? You do mm. evaluate it because you, you, if the, if she's doing well, you can, might mm. try and reduce it. But if, if she's going to do very badly, people can leave it on. But it's all a, a big discussion. It's a big discussion mm. and it's an informed decision. Absolutely. Yeah. I think but as a doctor, we're trying to protect the patient all the time. Absolutely. And, and we're we're, yeah, we're going to steer people away from yes. kind of anything reckless, I yeah. think. Yeah, but, that's um, it, yeah. but sometimes there are those judgment decisions and I think it mm. is important that women have the space to also mm. make decisions about their health. You know, I mean, obviously mm. we're not going to advise something mm. that we feel no, will cause harm. Exactly. Um, exactly. But in the absence sometimes of great data, sometimes it's mm. worth being honest. And but Rona, isn't it wonderful that, that there was so much about menopause this year? Isn't it wonderful when you'd see Joe Duffy on the airways and all the women? It was wonderful. Yeah. And the amount of women that came in to me and you and said, you know, oh God, so that's, you know, we weren't mm. going mad. You know, the creepy mm. crawly sensation of the face was actually Absolutely. definitely related and we weren't losing it, you know. Agree, and the whole solidarity lovely. of it. Oh, I thought that was um, lovely. In terms of finally yeah. being able to, yeah. and get rid of to the talk about get rid of the taboo and being able to talk about these things yeah. because yeah. they are really challenging and it Very. is really nice and when you say the word menopause that, you know, people do understand. And it's a positive thing, not a negative exactly. thing, which what is what we want. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Very quickly, Rona, just um, I'm always talking about trying to get women to get, you know, after they finish their families to discuss vasectomy with mm. her. And I mm. just think, you know, Jerry Ryan was wonderful because mm. he, he tried to, he yeah. went on publicly when, you know, wasn't even talked about and said I had one. But it's something we need to educate the, the male population because women do an awful lot. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of women sort of, I remember talking to one woman who had four very difficult pregnancies. She was a diabetic, which is why I was looking after her. But, you know, really she'd been told not to have the fourth for all medical reasons. And I said to her, you know, do talk to your husband about a vasectomy. And she said, what if you meet somebody else? That was what she said. <laughs> Can you believe it? That is so true. And I thought, God, her self-worth is so poor. You know, where, what sort of status the relationship is, but if her self-worth is so poor that she's afraid to ask him this, that if you meant, you know, it was just dreadful. But I do think we need to do some more work on that mm. because women are just sort of, you know, when they're putting their hand up for the tubal ligation after already going through so many pregnancies and, you know. I'm I remember one man arguing with me and saying, well, you know, the thing is you're going to have menopause. So like you'll be finished anyway when you're 50, whereas I can go on having babies till I'm in my 70s and I remember smiling I um, loved sharing a session um, in, in Spain a while ago when there was um, and I would talk about fertility and there was an IVF man there on the panel and I just said to him about the recent study that had stated that the ideal time of collecting sperm was up to 50 because after that there was uh, fragmentation and I, he had to answer honestly because there was <laughs> it and it was just wonderful you know and uh, like so many people oh. came up and said 
Mary, well done, you know. But, yeah. but uh, you know, the, we have the real chauvinistic thing that you can go on forever. In actual fact, ideally, if you were being very um, responsible, you wouldn't Make go on the forever. Best version, exactly. give it the best version. Mm. Yeah, I do think that, um, and I think, again, you're right. It's a real education thing. Mm. First of all, recognising that vasectomy is a very legitimate and effective mm. um, form of contraception. It mm. is, we should regard it as irreversible. Mm. I know at times yeah. vasectomies have been reversed, but in general, in if general, we're approaching yeah. that, we yeah. should approach it that this is an irreversible mm. form um, of contraception. But Obviously, there's a delay of 70 days <laughs> before yeah, um, exactly. all the little baby, baby sperms um, have worked their way out of the system. But also so that women aren't on uh, hormone treatment Green. for um, too much of their lives. Indeed, you know, when I, again, would have been training, mm. um, we were doing so many tubal ligations, mm. which involved a whole laparoscopic mm. procedure with mm. all the risks and complications. Mm. That's a much greater procedure than vasectomy in yeah, terms of risk. Is. And, and there is always risk of an early menopause, even though in majority cases it goes well, but there is a risk and I see them. Do you know, mm. uh, because, mm. you, you know, that, that mm. does happen. But, but, but just it's a, such a bigger big operation. operation well. yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And so I think when we're looking at the balance of yes. safety and efficacy, then yeah. there is a large argument in many We've cases. We have a lot of education to do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me. But I do think, and on the male side, I think, and I hope I don't speak out of turn, mm. but just from talking to people and talking mm. to couples, mm. um, I think, you know, women will say, oh, my husband feels he'd be firing blanks and mm. his virility would be at question and he thinks he won't be able to ejaculate or that it yeah. won't work anymore. Yeah. Um, all of that. Absolutely. Um, so I think there is an education for everyone to understand that actually just the sperm go but mm. everything else functions just as normal mm. and that, you know, sex life will be just as good after mm-hmm. vasectomy. Mm-hmm. There can be some complications like bruising and mm. can be very sore for a few days. And I'm sure there are men who've had horrible complications after mm. vasectomy. The simplest thing in medicine can exactly. always have a complication. But the, the majority main, go amazing. In the main. Yeah, and they're delighted really, when they have it. It's yeah. sort of a fear thing and it's a block. And you, yeah. just by talking about it, I think we'll remove it yeah. and encourage women to In the main, it's their. a really low risk procedure. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you know, I know the snip is a bit... I mm. think dismissive yes. but at yeah. the same time it is a low risk procedure yeah, yeah. and it can be done very effectively very efficiently and it's a really good form of um, contraception mm. and you know so for those people who finish their families but I agree I think, with you in yeah. the context of a couple where maybe there has been a very complicated obstetric history mm. it can be a really good option absolutely and women not having to stay on, on, on hormone treatment either yeah. you know unless it's necessary um, I, I'm really delighted with the HALO project that's mm. amazing mm. particularly we were talking about it just coming mm. in here mm. uh, that it's, it's helping the elderly because obviously we're all going to get old yeah. and it's so important and they, they, the elderly really suffered in the COVID lockdown didn't they? I agree R- with Ronis. that um, I think that you know I was very conscious my own mum mm. um, was you know just 83 when COVID hit and again the whole concept of isolation and she would have been a very active woman she had quite limited mobility but really mm. active and loved going out for lunch loved to play poker mm. every Tuesday all her life from about the age of 17 until mm. um, into her 80s you know yes, and yeah. all of those friendships and she great friends great yes. network of friends and they had so much joy in seeing each other and that socialization mm. was really important but also my mother was you know very much an independent thinker mm. she read about four books a day she was a very intelligent woman and I mean, she just hated the term cocoon, mm. just being so patronized and being and so invisible. And she was in the way as well. Exactly. And yeah. being so ignored mm. and being, you know, not a mm. whole And I do person. think people forget that we are all getting older. Mm. I, I always say that to patients, mm. you know, when they're dismissive of the elderly. I say, mm. do you realize that in 30 years time or 20 years time, you're going to be there? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the demographic mm. is huge because... Absolutely. We'll all live to our 90, hopefully, and beyond. Absolutely. Yeah. When I finished the mastership, I was working with R&D and I was fortunate mm. enough to be on the R&D strategy 
Chief mm. Committee and we were very much looking at the general hospital mm. setting um, and looking at that demographic and how the hospitals are going to cope with mm. this mm. Um, and I guess that's how I got I remember giving a paper McGill and we were looking mm. at you know what is wrong with our health service mm. and they're kind of going we've got to make a diagnosis mm. before we can start issuing um, and we see Sláinte Care struggling a bit this week mm. but it is what is the diagnosis and certainly demographic is going to play a huge part mm. in where our health service is going where the burdens will be and in the challenges in delivering care to to everyone um, and so we know our population is getting older surviving longer but surviving with chronic disease so we know this has got to be an area of healthcare that we are really focusing on mm. but then you come back to the human piece and I always mm. tell a story but as an intern I was doing ophthalmology and mm. I had to admit loads of people every day for cataracts and for all kinds of procedures and admitting one man um, he's there in his pajamas and I was you know at least two weeks in the job so in my own head total expert you know what I mean so I come in to um, and I'm asking him all the questions and I'm asking about drinking and he was having a glass of wine every day and I was giving out to him and then he was having a cigarette and he's about 80 um, and anyway he's laughing at me and he's saying listen <laughs> and then it all emerged at the end but he was a doctor and, okay, um, okay. and he had been kind of stringing me along a little okay, bit and having okay. a good laugh <laughs> so I learned my lesson because yes. um, I had assumed if you like, at the ripe old age of 24, that this man was somehow lesser because he was 80 mm. and he was an old man in the bed mm. and that he would not have views on things. And mm. of course, he had a brilliant brain. Was an a experience man, of life. Huge experience of life mm. and was very autonomous mm. um, and very brilliant. And I, in my own head, was not seeing that. Okay. And it was a really important lesson mm. on when we deal with elderly people, we see them sometimes through um, a really disordered prison. Mm. Um, mm. And we forget to accord them the right of their identity mm. um, and their autonomy. So I got very interested um, in that. I and then know. my own. I think it's so important. Yeah, yeah really mother's do. experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you're going for looking after fetal. From cradle to, yeah, to, do, yeah, to the other lovelier. end of life. It's a fabulous, um, a fab- a fabulous. Um, yeah, but uh, I think so. I mean, Halo Care as a project mm. is really just trying to enable people to live more independently in their own homes to mm. try and give peace of mind to people at home through monitoring techniques for not camera. It's not a big brother nobody is invading you but we can use radar um, technologies mm. that can allow room to detect if somebody falls that can allow room to detect I say how often the kettle is boiling Fabulous. and just to get a sense that someone is living their normal day and if there's something amiss mm. then we have the backup of a hub which is manned 24 7 which is so fabulous. we can ring and check in and just make sure everything is fine so it gives peace of mind to that person that they've got that extra support mm. and obviously there's a daily call from the hub and then there's a whole social piece as well that's connected people using kind of you know pa, you know mm. um, modern technology to connect people so that they can read the Irish Times on their halo pad Fabulous. they can connect with family etc so the big focus is living independently because I know mm. when my time comes yeah that's um, what I we all want is independent that's what we all want um, absolutely and, and Rona you're, you're a very empowering woman and this is an empowering podcast what would you say to people to tell them to you know all the people listening uh, what, what's your advice to them from <laughs> that you're short life that you've had what's your big advice to empower them if they're struggling a little bit or I think it's about dreaming you know Mm. I always think the best dreams we have are the dreams we have as children because we don't see the barriers we think we could be an astronaut and we think we will be a fireman and we think we can be all these things and we don't see the rationale of why we can't and as we get older something happens and you know we see all the barriers we recognize them and bit by bit sometimes I think 
we get overwhelmed by those barriers and before mm. we allow ourselves to dream we assume that this cannot be mm. whereas I think we need to stop that and I think we need to really dream big mm-hmm. and think big and just give things a go mm-hmm. and I always feel that Irish people have this terrible fear of failure and mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. whereas failure is normal it's part of us it's part of life every day mm. we fail at things it's mm. a normal part of existing and mm. we shouldn't be put off by it in Absolutely. fact it teaches us um, a lot but so I think we need to just go for things to have the courage mm. to really go for the things that matter to say the things that matter to invest in the things that matter to mm. us and not to be held back by fear fear okay. is so reductive mm-hmm. um, and it diminishes us and it stops us saying and doing the things mm. that maybe we should Fantastic. so hold the head up high dream big and go for it and you can be Dr. Rowan O'Mahony Dr. Rowan O'Mahony you're wonderful you've achieved so much you're such a wonderful mentor to women and it's as we've talked menopause we've talked um, all about uh, women's health what we hope will happen for maternity services and for the elderly as well but you're an amazing person and I hope you realise it and thank you very much for coming today thank you thank Thank you so much no appreciate it thank you